Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, the end of globalisation as economic turbulence rocks the market. One of Britain's best-known businessmen gives his take on how to weather the storm. Recent global events have undoubtedly exacerbated an already turbulent time for the global economy. So from Ukraine to COVID, big data to big tech, this week I discuss it all with one of the UK's most famous businessmen, advertising tycoon Sir Martin Sorrell. I started by asking, in his decades of experience, whether he'd ever seen anything like this before. I don't, it's happened so quickly. Because if we were having this conversation on January the 1st of this year, you know, we, we really wouldn't be aware of withdrawal of COVID stimulus. We wouldn't be aware of rise of interest rates, the, the consequent increase in inflation, the war, and, and of course the COVID lockdowns, the extended COVID lockdowns in China, which are thankfully seem to be easing off at the moment. So those five things, plus everything else we've had to deal with, uh, around COVID and climate change, and which are climate change being a much longer range thing. I, I probably that confluence of things is probably unprecedented, dangerous thing to say, because somebody will pop up and say, no, we've had it before. But this is probably a, a cyclical recession, but maybe a recession or a cyclical slowdown, uh, but with sort of a longer time frame than probably usually. I, I, I don't think that the difficulties will shake out until we get into the US presidential cycle in 24. I mean, we've got the midterms coming up. The, the, one, the one thing that's happened that, that may change that dynamics is Roe v. Wade. This reversal of the Supreme Court decision might stimulate the electorate to vote which historically, historically about a third of the US electorate votes one way, a third the other way, and a third don't turn up. But maybe Roe v. Wade will galvanise, particularly uh, the centre-centre-left, particularly the Democrats, and that might alter the dynamics of it. But um, Were those the part of the electorate that would have stayed away from the voting booth in the first place? The people you're talking about would probably have voted anyway. Well, it's difficult, obviously, to figure that out. My view would be that um, what th this slowdown or recession, whatever it turns out to be, the dynamics don't really change in the midterms in the US. And the US economy is the driving economy along with the Chinese economy of the world. I mean, the world is about 90-odd trillion, 92 trillion, I think it is, 94 trillion of GDP. The American economy is about 24, the Chinese economy about 14, so it's about 38 in those two. So those two economies are the central drivers. I, I mean, on the Chinese economy, I'm probably a little bit more bullish because we've already seen it in the Chinese stock markets in the last month or so. They've been much better performers from a much lower base than the Western stock market. So net-net, I, I think this is a, a slowdown uh, and uh, potentially a recession is probably about a third probability of a recession either later this year or into next year, maybe even more. Some, some people say it's 50-50 for next year. Uh, this is going to carry on, I think, until it's broken by the political dynamics in 24.
you're talking about changing political tectonics um, yeah. and, and it's very much a numbers game as well with 40% inflation and fuel prices like we've never seen. You're, you're saying a global recession is inevitable sooner I'm not than saying later. it's inevitable. I mean, there's a big debate as whether it's stagflation, whether it's a recession. I, I, I think basically it will probably be a shallowish recession, but that takes quite some time to come out of it because I can't see what the dynamic is. You know, those five things that we went through from withdrawal of COVID stimulus to the lockdowns, I can't see what breaks those dynamics to a significant degree. So was the recovery we started to see in 2021 a full storm? Wasn't a, never a full storm. Uh, what we saw was the, was, the, was the impact of a huge uh, spending uh, around COVID, quite rightly, to try and buttress uh, the economy at a time when it was needed. So it was, it was the impact, I think nobody's really sort of calculated this, but if you work out the sum of all the government infusions as a result of COVID, you know, the world is about 90 trillion, as I said, and there's probably about 10 to 15 trillion that was pumped into the economy. I mean, Larry Summers was calling out President Biden a year or so ago, and he's proved to be quite right, that the, the heavy spending that the Biden administration started to put in after 2020, not just from COVID, but in other areas too, drove price increases. Now, Larry Summers is saying it will be, you need five years of 5% unemployment to get price stability, defined as, I think, as under 2%. And I think people are starting to accept that inflation levels are likely in the long term to be greater than 2%, that the Fed or central banks will be unable to temper inflation to the degree needed to get to 2% because of the impact on employment. So there's this, this balancing act. But the answer to your question about, you know, was it... Uh, was it a full storm or not? No, it wasn't a full storm. Governments were quite rightly forced uh, to support the economy. And what you saw in, you know, in 2020, S4 grew at uh, 20%, which was exceptional given COVID. The year before, we were up 44, 40%. Uh, last year, it was 44%. Uh, we're a small factor. We're not a big factor, but focused on the digital economy. But what it, what it tells you is that the government stimulus, that the, the COVID stimulus, really buoyed the economy in 21. You know, CEOs in Western listed companies were saying, gosh, you know, we had a terrible 20. They forgot about that immediately. And they said, we had a record 21. But they forgot that they had their worst, worst year ever in 2020. So, no, what you saw was the withdrawal of the But What you started to see was the input of the stimulus and in 22, we've started to see the effects of withdrawal. Now, I know you're quite... It was, a, sorry, to put it, it, probably best way of putting it is with a full storm, because it was a, not, not artificially stimulated, but the boom was uh, as, as a result. So, you know, in, in March and April of 2020, we were all at death's door. I mean, talk about previous recessions. I mean, the bottom fell out of the market, and people misinterpreted... Um, or misunderstood what was going to happen in terms of government support. And in fact, what happened during COVID in 21 is the companies were better run for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, because the centre couldn't travel, so they couldn't interfere <laughs> with the operating activities of the company. So, so there was a dispersion of authority. That was good news. Secondly, office costs came down because people were vacating offices. And thirdly, travel costs came down. So margins improved. 
One of the, the stresses and strains in 22, apart from the, the pressure on top line growth, is going to be the margins probably won't be as good. Let's come back to talking about the economy, because I know you're yeah. quite bearish um, when it comes to Europe. So where, where's the growth going to come from? Well, the growth comes north, north and South America. Uh, Middle East, huge because of the increase in oil price and commodity prices. Bits of Africa, you know, a great Chinese interest as well as Latin America of Chinese interest. And then Asia, you know, Asia Pacific. But it's more varied because the war in Ukraine has raised in CEOs' minds and companies' minds the security risk, the war risk. And of course, there are tensions, uh, rightly or wrongly, in Asia too. So it, it sort of modifies. But I think basically it would be risk on, as I would put it, in North and South America, Middle East, parts of Africa, although Africa is quite difficult, quite volatile, and Asia Pacific. A risk off would be Europe. I think you know the, the problems in Central and Eastern Europe, I mean, whatever happens, whether a peace is negotiated, it looks as though the war will go on for a significant period of time. But even if there was a solution, let's say there was a, what many people call a bad peace, which would be uh, Ukraine surrendering Donbass, the Donbass region as well as Crimea to, to Russia, There is a danger that without regime change in Russia and regime change to a more, let's say, constructive relationship with the West, it's it's likely that maybe the Russians would regroup and then pursue policies which President Putin has made quite clear, not just since 2014 in Crimea, but before. And what about the relationship between the United States and China? I know you think that's quite key. It, well, it's absolutely key. I mean, you know, it's the two biggest economies in the world, the two economies that, you know, are, are probably amongst the fastest growing or the fastest growing. Uh, and it's key that they have a constructive relationship. And, I, and, and unfortunately, this goes back a long time. This goes back to maybe President Obama. Certainly was the case under President Trump. And to be fair, uh, was welcomed by certain sections of the the business community, industrial community uh, in America, uh, both both sides, you know, have hardened in their approach and their attitude. I mean, you know, you see the EU committing to a 600 billion uh, infrastructure fund, um, which which is an attempt to create a European Belt and Road, if you like. And so you see these tensions and and frictions, and that's a problem. And what, what it will result in is you know, more tariffs, more frictions for trade. And what we've had for the last, I, I don't know, I've been sort of active, I guess, since the late 1960s or the early 1970s or middle 1970s. So let's say it's 45, 50 years. And we were blessed by, by free trade, growth in free trade, the reduction of tariffs and barriers, and that has stimulated the world economy. So I think... What's going to happen is that the world will grow, but it will grow at a slower pace. I mean, for example, the beginning of this year, people, January the 1st, we were talking about 4 to 5% this year after 5 to 6 last year. Now we're talking about, we'll be lucky if we get to 3 this year, and people are talking about one and a half next year. That is below trend. You know, that's below what we've had before. And I think we probably have to get used to a world where growth is be- below trend and inflation is higher than we've been used to. So it's back, you know, going back to your original question about what's the most like what we're going through now, it's probably in the 1970s. 
and when there was significant inflation and prices got out of control. So is this the end of globalisation as we know it? I don't know about the end. Larry Fink says, you know, the end. I mean, I don't know whether it's as dramatic as that. But the, if Ted Levitt, the Harvard Business School professor who wrote the, the seminal article in October of 1983 in the Harvard Business Review, if he was right then, and he over-egged the pudding. I mean, he, he, he admitted that you know, his thesis was that consumers would consume everything in the same way everywhere. And we've seen that in China. You know, we've seen the growth of consumption. But, but now, you know, China has shifted and younger people in China are looking more, more closely at Chinese products and services and self-sufficiency, if you like, and less towards the West. I mean, in the surveys that we do and the, the polls that we do amongst the millennials, it's quite clear that that view of the West has changed, good or bad, it's changed. So, you know, the danger is that we have two, two, the two most dynamic economies in the world going in divergent directions, whereas one hopes that it would be much more integrated. So what, what the hope is that the leadership on both sides will be able to develop a constructive dialogue. It doesn't look good at the moment. And it, both sides, the approach on both sides has hardened over the, uh, over the last few years. And it doesn't look like, I mean, when, when, when Trump lost the election, although he d denies he's lost the election, uh, when President Trump lost the election, I suppose there was some hope that maybe President Biden might pursue a different course with, with Blinken, but, but that has not happened. My conversation with Sir Martin Sorrell continues after the break, so stay with us on the agenda as still to come, he tells me why data could be the new oil. Hangzhou is a Chinese port city with a unique history spanning centuries. It is the starting point of the ancient maritime Silk Road on the southeast coast of China. It is here where traders from far and wide cross paths doing business thousands of years ago. Leaving a footprint of diverse cultures and commerce still visible today in what is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Join me, Zanele Butelezi and Guo Yan, as we bring you the story of Chuangzhou from the beginning to the modern times, from the 10th to the 14th of August. Hi, this is Niu Niu, and yes, Old Wisdom New Insights is back with a brand new season. This time, we've got fun stories about these intriguing people. There's the top KOL from the Northern Song Dynasty, China's number one bamboo painter, and a socially awkward but academically brilliant reformer, and more. Do you want to know who they are? Just subscribe and listen to Old Wisdom New Insights on all the major podcast platforms. Welcome back to The Agenda. More now from my conversation with UK businessman and advertising guru Sir Martin Sorrell. Before the break, we discussed how political tectonics can change global economies and whether globalisation could become a thing of the past. My next question was about climate change. I asked Sir Martin if he thinks net zero goals have wandered too far out of the political spotlight. Well, the danger is that with slower growth, particularly with private companies and public listed companies, that the priorities will be on short-term performance rather than 
the longer term goals. I mean, my view is that a lot of the discussion around climate change and uh, similar areas is, is sort of too intellectual and too ponderous and too complicated. Uh, and to my mind, it's very simple. If you're in business for the long term, you're going to do everything to make sure all the share stakeholders are looked after. Your people, your suppliers, your partners, NGOs, government, whatever it happens to be, if you're in business for the long term. So, you know, you take Milton Friedman's thesis that the role, you know, the role of a company is to maximise profit, but you'd say maximise it in the long term, not in the short term. And in that way, you, you get rid of all the conflicts. Unfortunately, when you have short-term economic pressure, you know, the priorities shift. You know, you don't have the luxury of top-line growth to give you a little bit more uh, wiggle room, a little bit more opportunity for, for expansion. You know, that, that economic pressure um, puts pressure on the priorities and makes you, makes you much more, obviously, short-term focused. And, you know, in the Western environment, where you have quarterly reporting, and indeed, the institutions are incentivized around quarterly performance. I mean, it's not just, you know, on the company side, it's on the, that has to change in terms of thinking about the long term, but institutions too. Now, private equity, which controls probably about 15% of Western uh, industry, and at the margin is probably doing half the deal, so they're, they're increasing their share. Their, their whole periods are three to five years, probably not long enough listed companies, you know, there's quite a lot of churn. I think McKinsey says the average listed company lasts for about 12 years in the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100. So you've got, you know, great rotation and therefore people are very sort of focused on short to medium term performance. And the danger, as I say, is when the pressure intensifies that those sort of long range issues or opportunities are put on the back burner. So looking at those long-term issues like climate change and then hopefully shorter-term ones like the conflict in, in Ukraine, how, how's that all affecting how your clients think about risk? Well, I think there are two things. There's the geographical thing that we talked about it before. So risk on in North and South America, Middle East, parts of Africa and Asia, Pacific risk off, if you like, in Europe. That's one thing. And the second thing is technology. I mean, one of the interesting things about the war is it has demonstrated the importance of technology. When the German government spends 4% of its GDP on defence, which it historically has not done, or certainly since the Second World War it has not done, what they're going to invest in is not just, just missiles and military equipment, or indeed people, they're going to invest in tech. Cyber defence and cyber offence is critically important. So what, what the war has done is demonstrated yet again the importance of technology. And you see it in the West and the East. I mean, you, you know, the three big platforms in the West have come under regulatory pressure. The three in the East have also come in under, you know, Alibaba, Tencent and uh, ByteDance or TikTok have come under pressure as the Chinese government you know, intervened in private education, in gaming and some of the social issues around social, social media. So, uh, and I think what we're starting to see is a realization by governments on both sides, you know, both West and East, that a strong tech sector is really, really needed uh, increasingly um, for the, the health, the, uh, the economic health and defense of the nation. 
So technical transformation becomes all the more important. Yeah. What's your take on tech stocks and what's happening to them? Tencent has done incredibly well. The big, the new kid on the block is TikTok and ByteDance, which which has done. Uh, it's probably double what you know as a result of what I saw and heard in Cannes. I would put probably um, TikTok at twice the level in terms of ad revenues that I thought it was. I mean, the the world Google is so last year. The digital media or the media economy globally was about 750 billion. Digital was 450 billion. Google was around 215 billion. Um, Facebook about 115, and Amazon was 30, 31. This year, Amazon looks like 40, 41. Probably a Facebook or, or Meta around 130, 135, and Google around 235. That level. Tencent, last time I checked, was about 100 billion. Alibaba, I don't think give their ad revenues out. But TikTok, I thought, was around 30. I think it may well be double that. I mean, because they've been expanding their non-Chinese business. You went back two or three years ago, it was purely a Chinese business. Now it's an outbound Chinese. You know, people think that the the big platforms don't have, the Western platforms don't have big businesses in China. Well, in one sense, they do, but in another sense, they really do, and that is outbound Chinese. So every one of the platforms that Chinese companies looking to expand globally, which there are many and many very successful ones, will be using those platforms. So that, that outbound Chinese profit center can be the second largest in, in, in most cases. If it's all about the data, though, and I know that's something that you've yes. been thinking about too, um, what, what, why do you think it is the, the new oil? What, it, what is it about? Well, it, it, you know, if we, if we look at um, what our clients are doing, you know, so the digital economy in most of the segments that we're in, whether it be the media one that I described, marketing services, which is 500 billion, trade budgets, which is 800 billion, or uh, digital transformation, which is 400 billion. So our addressable market is about 2.4 trillion so it's huge wherever you look there you know digital is probably about 60% of the market it's forecast to go to 70% by 2025 or 24 it's going to forecast to grow in most of the markets in which we operate in but 10 to 15% at least and in the transformation markets even higher in order to get all all of that done or most of it done given what google has done on de- deprecating third party cookies given what apple has done on idfa what it means is that the the data that's really important or there are two sources of data that are really important firstly first party data that's data that you own as a client you know you're you're shopping with somebody or you're you know buying essentials or whatever it happens to be and they have that data you consent to it. If you don't consent to it, you know, that deals with the privacy hurdle, but consent to it. The, the, the issue for the client is how can they integrate that first party data altogether in, a, in an effective way? Uh, so that's one source. And then the other source is from the platforms. Alphabet, Meta, Amazon, Alibaba, Tencent, ByteDance, TikTok, Kaoshu, whatever, have these sources of information around signals about what you're doing online, which when melded together with the first party data is extremely effective. So looking at the media companies who, who are getting it right, I mean, who, who are the trailblazers who, who, who are lagging and need to step it up? You, you mentioned TikTok mm-hmm. uh, as being a shining example. It's the six that I mentioned. It's the three Western and the three Eastern. Beyond that, I mean, Apple is building a very effective 
advertising platform is probably up to about 10 billion as best as we can uh, but but you know relative I gave you the numbers relative to the numbers that we're talk, talking about elsewhere still at the smaller end but growing very rapidly I think Amazon will get to that 40 billion this year I think they'll get to a hundred I think uh, you know TikTok will probably get to to that level ByteDance certainly as a whole will get to that level Apple will certainly start to develop its business even stronger. You've seen Netflix now developing an advertising-based model and Disney Plus. So you're going to see, you know, I think next year at Cannes, Netflix will be there in force if it's developed its, its, its advertising platform. So you're going to see those. The, the other platforms, Twitter, Snap, Pinterest, are relatively small. That doesn't mean they're unimportant, but just the orders of magnitude, Snap's about five and a half billion. Twitter, I mentioned, is four and a half billion. Pinterest is smaller. So the, the other platforms are, mu are much smaller. The ones that really have made inroads are the big six. So Martin Sorrell, absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very you. much. Thank you for Thank your you. insight. I hope Thank I cheered you. you up. Coming up on a future agenda. A year on since the fall of Kabul, we find out how life under Taliban control has changed Afghanistan. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.